Thank you for listening to the Silver Club Podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. All right, Colin, welcome back. Episode number 36, perfect golfing number to 18 hole rounds right there. Uh, I love a 36 hole day, you know, as, as long as I'm, as long as I can remain y- young enough to, uh, to handle it. I'm yeah. always going to, I'm always down for, I'm always down for the afternoon, the replay round when you're young and you don't have a lot of money and you're in the UK and stuff traveling. It's always something like it would in the old days, it used to be, you know, 55 pounds for a round, but 75 or 80 for the day. You'd be like, I can't afford not to play twice. (laughs) (laughs) No question. No question. Well, yeah, episode 36, that's, we've got, we've come a long way. It's been, uh, it's been fun. Uh, We're in a little bit of a weird holding pattern right now. And we're all trying to get out to the golf course. It looks like a lot of states are open. Uh, What's going on at the Yale course these days? Are you, are you playing golf out there? What does it look like? I mean, it's one of the greatest architectural masterpieces in the whole world. The course is presently closed. Um, Yale's not going to let the golf course be the only f- only building on campus open. <laughs> that's just yeah, not that's a good happen. point, isn't it? Uh, but Connecticut's open, and uh, all our friends in Massachusetts and New Hampshire and New Jersey, uh, they're definitely playing. Uh, I know down in Florida, for example, they they never had a break. Um, so I, I, it is we are fortunate. Uh, that it is the one, it is it is one of the few activities that is it's one of the first things you can you can do that sort of passes that clears all the necessary hurdles of safety. So um, I'm in favor. Yeah, of no that. question, no question. One of those one of those things that we're real excited, and this is really what this podcast is about today is is we're going to get a chance to chat with Jerry Foltz, who's the on course reporter for not only Golf Channel but NBC as as of recent years, and he was asked to be the on-course reporter for one of the few NBC reporters that are going to be there on-site at Seminole this Sunday, 2 o'clock Eastern. They're going to showcase Seminole to the whole world. I, I, I'm i giddy, to be honest with you. I, I caddied there about 20 years ago. Uh, Steve, 20 years ago, what was the uh, what was the going rate? Per bag for a caddy, you know it. It was, I would say, with with tip and everything, probably eighty to a hundred dollars. I think the there were some members that were very very generous and paid above that, uh, depending on if it was a a tournament or whatnot. But yeah, a lot of times would be you know double bags. It's a it's a fairly easy walk. Most of the golf course is pretty flat, but you can you can get in some bunkers out there and. Uh, you can earn your keep. There was one foursome I remember we had one day. They were in every single bunker. I mean, literally, they had to regrip the rakes when we were done. It was unbelievable. <laughs> any notable, any notable loops? You know, reigning U.S. Salmon or champions, or Walker Cuppers, or Captain. Uh, certainly, probably just about every round there would be like a CEO or somebody. The most amazing thing about Seminole, I think, are the members and the guests that they bring. I had the fortune enough to caddy for, let's see, people. I caddied for Lanny Watkins. I caddied for Gary Player. I caddied for Jack Nicholas. I caddied for 
Rush Limbaugh. I caddied for Jack Welch, the former CEO of GE. Um, I mean, you name it. I mean, the dignitaries of the world travel through there. What was it like caddying for Nicholas when you were just... (laughs) Um, So Nicholas, his bag... He, it was. A, I did a single bag because he he didn't take a, a stat. He didn't take his uh, a light bag. He took the tour bag. So I just carried one. And but the the funny thing, Jack takes the. There's like a cushiony little liner at the bottom of the bag. He likes that sound. It's like that classic when you kind of rattle the clubs in there a little bit. He doesn't want the cushiony sound when you drop the club in. He wants it to kind of rattle around so it really sounds like you're doing, doing some work and meeting business. And so, so I remember that I felt like there was a weight in the bottom of it though. So it was a heavy bag. Uh, Another thing I remember he had, he carried a a PB and J in his bag. He he downed that on about the 11th or 12th hole. And that was one of his favorite go-to, but, but Jack was, uh, I remember he had a set of McGregor blades that were very worn. I remember his nine iron specifically, like like the sweet spot was almost completely worn out. Like there was no grooves on it at all. Yet he really liked it because it's almost like he wasn't, he didn't spin it too much. It was like just the right amount. The ball would kind of hit and stop. He was never one to, to spin the ball back. I was lucky enough to play with him at a practice round, the masters. And I also noticed that his ball never spun back. It just kind of hit and stopped. And that was the cool thing uh, about Jack, but that, that thing was worn like a, like a, Baby's behind. So where? Wait, what year? When were you? What two years were you caddying there? How old were you? Uh, two thousand, two thousand one. Okay, so you were trying right. to earn a few bucks in the winter when I was trying to make it as a pro, and so you'd already played. You'd already played with him at the Masters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty interesting. That's pretty cool. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, Gary Player was amazing. He never. He's a talker, boy. He he never stopped talking. Uh, he would he would talk about the bunkers and uh, I can't even do his accent, but it was unbelievable. Uh, the the never the one thing I'll never forget about Gary was he was in five bunkers that day, and four four he was obviously known as being the the bunker wizard. He got up and down every time. But when I when I caddied for him, he was in five bunkers that day, and the bunkers at Seminole are no joke. They are deep. They are they vary in texture and depth, and you have to really read the bunkers out there much differently than you would uh, at even an Augusta National or someplace that keeps the bunkers really absolutely perfect. And but he was in five bunkers, four of those shots he hit to literally a foot; they were just a tap in, and the other one he hold. And the, <laughs> when he he was he was getting out of the bunker, he handed me his wedge. On uh, he was in the bunker on nine, hits a great shot out to a foot hands me his wedge, and he says, Steve, the last time I failed to get up and down in two from a bunker, the Pope was an altar boy. <laughs> what was? Do you remember the loft on his bunker wedge? I, I couldn't remember that. I, I couldn't remember that. But I, I, would, I would say it's probably, you know, it was a 54 to 56 right in there. I, you know, pretty standard, I think. I don't think it was any... Right. Do you remember? Crazy? Do you remember when you sort of added a sixty when they kind of came along in the sort of nineties, the early nineties? Like it was, Seve played his entire career. Trevino, as well. I mean, I don't think they ever had the the max loft they played with was a fifty six degree club until maybe late late in their career. Sixty. I don't know. That's a that's a great question. I was probably probably college. I mean, probably you know. Mid nineties, maybe I, I don't know. I, I I'm trying to, 
I'm trying to remember, but yeah, it I was do, probably yeah, it was probably early to mid nineties. Yeah, I do think a lot of golfers would benefit from practicing and trying, trying, trying a, a mid fifty degree bunker wedge. It, yeah, it, it may not always. They may have an advantage. It may not. It may not allow them to get up and down on sort of really short sided stuff, but it's something that people should practice. And um, it's something that I feel like I've, 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 you get too dependent upon the loft be, sort of bailing you out when you use a 60 and you, you can kind of, I, I think that one thing I've been wanting to do, maybe when I get back to golf this year is, is to try to find my old sort of Hogan special SI 55 degree wedge from the old days and try to, and try to see how I can use that around the greens. But in, in some ways, like you, you couldn't, the turf conditions are almost too tight these days to be able to use those old wedges. Or I think you you're right. Yeah. yeah. And they, they kind of eliminated that club as an option from sort of tight lie chips around the greens, or at least it made it harder. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. I think that, yeah, things have changed. Agronomy has changed and uh, the mowers, everything, all the technology that surrounds golf has changed. There's no question about that. And I agree with you about the bunkers at Seminole. It's similar to mid-ocean where you get a windy seaside condition. You cannot have the sand's going to move throughout the day, people climbing in and out of them, the breeze coming. And so you get, you're absolutely right about even your feet can be where the sand, where the bunker could be bare. And by the time you get to where the ball, it's, it's, it's heavy and it's, and it's thick and deposited. And so you can get embarrassed at some of those seaside bunkers where they're. You kind have of- to read. You just have to read the lies so well and so and every single time. You can't just assume it's one thing or another because it's probably not. <laughs> right. I'm looking forward to um, among uh, a variety of things, but I'm looking forward to them. Yeah, just walking, carrying their clubs, having having an enjoyable round, like four guys at the club at a course and. Um, this can only look good for golf people, um, being social, enjoying themselves, needling each other, having it, having it, um, come down to a bunch of birdie and eagle putts. Um, who knows, perhaps something like this could become an annual staple and yeah, bring it this. Maybe this is how we will get to see places like Cypress Point and Pine Valley on television and, yeah. and, and others like, you know, people would love to see a match at Sand Hills and elsewhere. I mean, these are places that we can sort of see in photographs, but this will, this will be, this will be really fun to see Seminole on television looking gorgeous. You're going to have the, I'm sure they'll have beautiful drone imagery. It's, it's, it's pretty exciting. Oh, it sure is. Uh, and if the world can get back to normal before next May, early May, the uh, Walker Cup will visit Seminole as well. So I'm sure people, the public will be able to come out and take a look for their own eyes at the uh, the splendor that is Seminole. And just a it's a it's an awesome place in South Florida. And we just love it. But, uh, you know, we've got to get to this podcast right now. Jerry Foltz. He's going to uh, give us some great insight on what people are going to see this weekend. And I know he's really excited to get to Seminole and cover this this great event uh, that, that Taylor made us put on. And it's all a charity, a charity event. I know Pete Bavacqua with NBC Sports. He's been very important uh, in getting this event there as well. 
Bob Ford, the head professional who we had on recently in episode 28 of our podcast, a very popular podcast, by the way. We got to learn a lot about Seminole. And so anyway, if if our listeners haven't listened to that one, check that one out. That'll be exciting. But let's get to Jerry Foltz here and wonderful podcast and look forward to this awesome day on Sunday for a little golf, some, some finally some live golf, Colin. Here, here. All right, Colin. But before we get to our great podcast with Jerry Foltz, I just wanted to thank all of the partners of the Silver Club Golfing Society who have helped really support all of our events. The Dunhill brand, Leith Silver Company, the Winston Collection, Turtleson, and Torch Eyewear. These companies have just been tremendous in our support, and I cannot thank them enough. Check out all of the links to their sites on our website at silverclubgs.com on the web. On our website, you'll be able to check out all of our events and everything we're doing, including our Greatest Club Champions post as well. So just click in the drop-down menu and have at it. Don't forget to look on Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter, and we're on Facebook. Okay, without further ado, let's get to Jerry Foltz now as he previews the great charity event this weekend at Seminole. He's a tour winner, a member of the Las Vegas Golf Hall of Fame, but is best known for his work on NBC and Golf Channel over the last 20 years. Welcome, Jerry Foltz, to the Silver Club Podcast. Pleasure to be with you, Steve. Thanks for having me on. No, I appreciate your time. Uh, I know you're, you're, you're so busy these days doing lots of things, and you've got a, a great opportunity coming up. Just got the call to go down there and go to Seminole and cover a little live golf for once in the last few weeks. And we'll get to that soon. But Donald Ross was famous for inverted saucer greens. Pete Dye, really famous for his railroad ties at places like TPC Sawgrass. What's the false Stupples team? What's your calling card as far as golf course architecture? Well, we have three, uh, five tee boxes and three greens currently cut on the back. They call it the back 40. It's about three acres. And uh, there's, it's minimalist. It's very minimalist. Our greens mower is just our regular old riding Toro, and you set it down to the lowest level. And then we have a push-behind mower that's a rotary mower that gets it a little more clipped. I got some uh, old, about six inches round coffee jugs buried in the in the dirt, and uh, I don't think there's going to be a change in hole locations anytime soon. <laughs> and then some bamboo sticks from around the uh, neighborhood here with some foam balls on top for it. It's scenic. We have cows, horses, Shetland ponies. Uh, the occasional panther drives or walks by. A bunch of turkeys. It's a uh, it's a lot of livestock. Um, tips out at 212 yards. Nice, nice. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, if any of our listeners have followed you on social media, you and your better half, Karen Stupples, a major champion in the world who we've actually had on our podcast back a few episodes ago. Uh, yeah, you guys have, have uh, dominated a, a bit of the social media world, and it's great. Did you guys, did you guys figure out a name for the, the golf course in your, in your yard yet? Because I know there was a few floating around. Uh, there was a few. Karen put it out there for input from uh, friends on Twitter, and, and we've had a lot of fun with Twitter. It started off and still is just basically our main source of entertainment right now. So we put out a tweet or two a day and, and have some reaction and, and play along with the people and all in good fun, all a diversion. Um, but we put it out there. There were some great ones. You know, she won her major at uh, Sunningdale and somebody suggested Sunning Ale. 
because of my propensity to have a few suds every now and then. There were a, a number of good ones, but a good friend of ours in the TV industry, Ethan Ritz, came up. He lives in Quad Cities, and he came up with TPC Beer Run. So it's officially TPC Beer Run. <laughs> that sounds perfect. Yeah, they, I've uh, you definitely seen out there. You have a, an affinity for the the uh, the libation or two. You've done uh, you've done some other great work. Uh, baking croissants australian meat pies my favorite though double stuffed fried oreos those are uh, pretty solid yeah those are the, the, everything i i make happens to be very high in, in saturated fat content those may be the most put a little powdered sugar on top that's that's entry-level stuff the uh, the croissants actually are are kind of master's level stuff and and like almost everything I've baked, the first time I follow the recipe perfectly and they turn out fantastic and it never quite is as good the second time. But uh, I, love, I didn't know I would love bacon and I absolutely bake something just about every day. It's, it's a blast. Made biscuits this morning for breakfast. Nice, nice. That's, uh, that's impressive. I just had a little, you, you'd be impressed. I was thinking of you. I had a, a nice uh, tuna melt with avocado on English muffin just now for lunch. Uh, I'll divulge the uh, recipe when we're done here. But, Did you... Uh, uh, did you bake the English muffin yourself? I, I didn't. I didn't. I wish I would have done that, but uh, yeah, there you go. Friend, my, my friend named Thomas did. But uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so so just uh, before we get into what you're up to this weekend, and you know, you, you've been a prolific broadcaster for many years. Just kind of, you know, you really come across to me though when I have talked to you in person, and obviously now, and you know, we've known each other for quite a while back since my Canadian tour days, but you know, you come across as the quote unquote normal guy. What sort of things in your upbringing did you really attribute that to? Would you say? Uh, well, I don't know any other guy. This is just me. I'm, um, <laughs> when I first got into broadcasting, I, I sought advice from two people. One was my mother, of course, my late mother now. And, uh, and Ken Venturi was the other. And I didn't know Ken. I introduced myself to him in an outing somewhere at Kakwa up in Erie, Pennsylvania. And he gave me some great advice, but my advice from my mother was always be yourself because the moment you're not, everybody will know. Never try to be somebody else. And, and uh, that's, a, that's advice that should carry with you through life, not just while you're on the air. Um, and I guess part of it is I grew up very blue collar. We had nothing. I've had a job since I was eight years old, and that's, that's the type of uh, person I relate to uh, more than, than someone who grew up in a, in a world of privilege, even though I'm surrounded in my current job by a lot of people who fit that fit that mold as well but um i don't know you just i like being around good people and i hopefully uh I, hopefully when i when i do pass they'll say he was a lot of fun but he was a good guy no doubt that definitely does come across and you're uh in all of your interviews and your everything that you're you're on on uh, the golf channel and now nbc in recent history but uh take us back real quick to your college days you played at university of arizona Talk about maybe some of your play there and how you saw yourself progressing into a professional game and and maybe some of your teammates there. Just just chat briefly about your college days. Well, I started at a junior college in Waco, Texas, McLennan Community College, because coming out of Vegas and graduated high school in 1980, there wasn't a, there wasn't an AJGA, so to speak. There wasn't a lot of avenues to reach some uh, notoriety to where college coaches would recruit you. And I only got recruited to a couple of places, UNLV included. And UNLV at the time was not a golf school. Uh, and then the coach called me from this junior college I'd never heard of in a town that I barely heard of. And he said, you interested in coming down here for a year? And, I said, and he said, they just got done finishing second, third or fourth for seven consecutive years at Nationals. 
So I said, why not? I got down there. I, I saw that I was going to live in an apartment um, instead of a dorm. I saw that the drinking age was 18, which was important to me at the time. Um, and I saw a couple of the golf courses, and I absolutely loved it. So I went there for a year and played really well, finished second in nationals. And then my coach left. He got the head coaching job at Texas, but he didn't have any scholarship money to bring me. Uh, Randall Chambly was promised the last scholarship from the outgoing coach. So Randall Chambly got me there, too, because I really wanted to go to Texas. But he got that. I went to Oral Roberts University, which uh, obviously I didn't fit in well. Played for a year there. Uh, marginal success, but uh, that wasn't my type of environment, obviously. And uh, transferred to U of A and absolutely loved it there. Played with some great guys. Mike Springer became one of my closest friends back when we were in college. Uh, a couple of guys you wouldn't know, John Schoonover, Magnus Erickson, the late Willie Kane was my roommate. Um, and, uh, and I just, you know, I never really had a plan. I knew that I was going to school to play golf because I wasn't much of a student, although I did end up graduating. I wasn't much of a student. And I always wanted to play golf. And then I got out of college and, and never really had a plan. And I knew I didn't have the money to go play professionally. I uh, got a job at a golf course. A few of the members decided to sponsor me. And three days later, I got rear-ended by a drunk driver and was derailed for quite some time. Yeah, that's a that's a tremendous story in itself and in in how you progressed through college and yeah, you you turned pro and it's almost like the stars just didn't align right away, but you you overcame that. And this is this is a great insight I think into your into your persona and your psyche. You came back in 1994, you won the Newport Classic. Uh the next year in the Nike Tour, you won the South Carolina Classic. You really had a lot to overcome in that time gap. Talk to us a little bit about from that point about being hit and having the the injuries, and uh, just take us through that time span a little bit and the mental roller coaster that you endured. Uh, well, I thought it was over. I mean, I I, uh, I couldn't play golf. I had massive pain in my. I always had a little lower back pain, but that was crazy. But then it was in my upper back, and it wouldn't go away. They tried everything: epidurals, nerve blocks, um, and it wouldn't go away. So I thought I was done. Uh, ended up at the time, got engaged and got married, and uh, and was just going to go on with a normal life. I had worked at a golf course previous to that, and instead of going back in that business, I uh, I worked, got my real estate license and began trying to sell commercial real estate. But it was a bad time for that after Reagan had just changed the tax laws, and then started bartending at night just to make money. My my wife uh, was a was a school teacher at a private school, making a whole fourteen thousand dollars per year. And so I bartended at night. That led to uh, becoming working at a really nice restaurant in Tucson and uh, and manage, helping manage another fancy kind of sports bar. And I played golf with the owner of the restaurant, a guy named Bill Hillenbrand, back in 1990 or 91. He was uh, he was a rather wealthy guy. Grew up a family of Batesville caskets up in Batesville, Indiana. Um, and we played golf, and I birdied five of nine holes, or six of nine holes, including the last five in a row at Montana Canyon. The next day, he and his wife called me over and said. I don't know what it's going to take, but if you want to go play professional golf, you let me know the number and I'm, I'm sponsored. And uh, he became my closest friend on earth. And my son's named after him. His middle name is. Wow. And uh, he sponsored me for 10 years. And that's uh, that allowed me to live that life. I was a 28-year-old rookie on the Ben Hogan tour, now Corn Ferry tour. That's a little old to get started. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's certainly, certainly the perseverance, though, over that time period is... Uh, can't can't be overlooked for sure. Um, Golf never gets out of your blood, Steve. You know that it never does. I mean, I still I'm 57 years old, and I go I, I uh, played golf the other day with my son and some friends, and you hit a few shots, and you're like, you know, I think I could still do it. I think I could go qualify for one of these Champions Tour events, or maybe the Open or something. And 
it never gets out of your blood. You still dream the same dreams you did when you were 10 years old. <laughs> For sure. Did you ever did you ever think about because of you've gotten into the broadcasting side of things and really out of the playing, did you ever think about getting your amateur status back and getting into some of those events or just really maybe no time to do that? No, well, you know, the USGA typically they the, the time they make you stay away from competitive golf when applying for your amateur status has to do uh, typically varies based on the level of success you had as a professional. So I would probably get it back in about two or three days instead of the two years. Um, and I don't I don't have any interest in playing. I'm, I love playing golf. I love playing with my friends. I don't have any interest in competition unless it's, you know, I would love to play in a U.S. Senior Open because I played in every single USGA event for which I've been eligible in amateur, junior, and public links. Um, and a U.S. Open, and that'd be that'd be like my personal grand slam. And I've tried it a couple times and missed it. It never really fits in my schedule. But no, I I don't think you really want to hear uh, a so-called expert analyst who's a got a certified six handicap. You know, it's hard to believe what he's saying. No doubt about that. And uh, we believe a lot of what you're saying. And I, I got to tell you a little story though. A little birdie told me a great story about. Uh, this is in your professional days about playing in a qualifier for an event and waiting around all day for a playoff. And you didn't necessarily kill the time by hitting balls on the range or hitting putts on the practice green. Do you, would you uh, recall this, this story? Uh, well, there's probably been a few of those. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe the best I one. Then. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I remember uh, one incident when I was waiting around all day for a playoff, it was to win. It was actually the Taco Bell classic you talked talk about earlier. And the host there that owned the resort, the Newport beach golf and Bay club, um, he wouldn't let me have any beer because he'd love to have his, his Miller Lite beers and, and he wouldn't let me have any all day long. But the bartender at his own club was a friend of mine. And this was sponsored by Pepsi, of course, Pepsi, which owned or maybe still does own Taco Bell and KFC and everything else. And he would fill up my Pepsi can with beer. So uh, I might have, I was a playoff against uh, Tom Stankowski, Paul's brother, and Sonny Skinner right at sunset. And it wasn't that easy teeing up the ball on the first hole. And it wasn't because of nerves. <laughs> and I birdied it. He birdied it. And that was it. Ball game over. Ball game over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. That's great. Well, that, so that's you as a player. Let's, let's move on to Jerry, the, the broadcaster. Talk about this year and kind of trying to plan. Obviously, we were all halted a few months ago with all of our activities, but I know the LPGA Tour is trying to get back in action. Mike Wan has done a tremendous job, I think, in all the communications to everybody and just trying to, you know, even not just this year, but over the course of his tenure. Talk about a little bit about the travel and what you're thinking about uh, and how you're going to navigate it. Is it a driving? Is it a flying? Is it uh, where do you think that, that falls for you? I haven't gotten on an airplane since Mayakoba last year in Cancun. Because the last LPJ event of the year was in Florida. The first two LPJ events this year were in Florida. I didn't make the Hawaii trip this year, uh, which I normally do, the uh, Kapalua and Sony. So I haven't been on an airplane since then. And it's been really, really strange because the weekly trips to the airport and, you know, home for a day were had just become a part of my life. Um, and like Karen Stuffel said, she goes, normally we have five weeks worth of stuff to do in a day and a half. And now we have a day and a half's worth of stuff to do in five months, it seems like. <laughs> uh, I haven't worked since the second week or the second tournament in January into January, uh, the Bainbridge Classic down in Boca. And um, 
And then we had just kind of been on hold um, doing stuff around here. Now, before Karen saw the writing on the wall long before anybody else, we had our masks and gloves delivered to our house in January. That's how far ahead of it she was. And just being able to kind of see the future with how this thing was going to progress. Um, she was working the players that ultimately got canceled after round one. And we had to be in Phoenix the very next week for the Founders Cup. We had decided a month before that, before they even canceled everything, we weren't getting on an airplane. I was going to pick her up on Sunday night in, in St. Augustine or Ponte Vedra, and we were going to drive to Phoenix. We'd get there Tuesday night or Wednesday morning and, and drive uh, all, all of those and then come back and see what happens. So as it stands right now, when the LPGA does return in July, uh, we're, going to, we're planning on throwing everything in the back of my truck and just hauling. And, and you know, because we don't – when you're broadcast, you don't have to be there on Monday and Tuesday for practice rounds like you do a player. We just basically have to get there Wednesday by noon or so, and we're fine. So we'll enjoy taking our time. She has a big 40-foot RV. We've actually contemplated driving that thing, but there are some really long drives, and that thing's a beast to drive. So <laughs> yeah, we're planning on driving international travel. We're both scheduled to go overseas with the Women's British to the Evian Championship. That's going to be a tough uh, drive. I, it's going to be a tough <laughs> drive, but I, you know, it's, I have a hard time seeing how those are going to get pulled off in uh, you know August with, uh, with the current um, – travel restrictions and the fear of wanting to get on an airplane. Yeah. I was looking at the TSA site uh, recently. Yeah. That's they're down over 90% uh, overall in the whole United States of flying. So uh, it's, yeah, everybody's a little leery for sure. No matter how much they disinfect those planes, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's pretty tough, but uh, you as a broadcaster though, I mentioned before we met back in our Canadian, my Canadian tour days back in the early two thousands. And I, I'm, proud enough to say that you interviewed me on the 18th green of one of my victories. And, uh, I will, I will never forget that. That was pretty, uh, <laughs> that was pretty tremendous. Um, but, you know, speaking of interviews though, I see that your natural ability really comes out and shines when you do an interview. How long did it take you to really be a prolific interviewer that we see day in and day out? Uh, well, I don't know if prolific is, uh, that's kind, very kind. Um, I, I get a lot of response to my interviews for some reason. I don't know why. I just do what I think it, I think I would want to know. I ask what I think I would want to know as a viewer. If I were watching all day long, what would I want to know? Um, and but you have to have you have to be able to you know approach it the right way. You can't be a, a cheerleader for the player and just make everything sound great when they just three putted three of the last four holes. But you also can't say you know how bad did you choke type thing and put words in their mouth that way. So you kind of gotta you know finesse it a little bit and have their, their confidence uh, hope that they have the confidence in you to know that you're not going to hang them out to dry, even when you're asking a tough question. Um, there is no real training. Keith Hersland, who you know, uh, who hired me and trained me initially, uh, was, was great about coaching you through interviews. When I first started doing them, I would write down two or three questions in the back of my yardage book. And I would invariably be so nervous that after I got through the first one, if I hadn't screwed it up too bad already, I couldn't remember at all what the next one was. So I'd have to look down and I'm interviewing you and I'm looking down at my thing. It's distracting to you. You don't come off looking as good as you should. And, uh, and then eventually I lost my yardage book right before the, right before, a, a, I think it was the end of a tournament. I had to interview the guy before he signed his card. And, um, and I was like, I panicked. And then I realized, just listen to what he says, you know, know what you want to ask him, listen to what he says. And if it leads somewhere, it does. If not, ask another question that you, you kind of want to know that's in the back of your head. And I've never written down a question since then. So um, there's no, it's, I mean, I guess it's a bit of an art. I, I do 
plenty of very, very bad interviews. But occasionally <laughs> I get one that becomes a high profile one, like Alexi Thompson after the four shot penalty. And everybody remembers that. Or Christina Kim having one in Mexico a couple years back after a long hiatus and having battled clinical depression. And people kind of look at those as all my interviews are like that. No, I do tons of really bad ones that I, I get. I, I send it back to Grant in the booth and I'm like, Jesus, well, what an idiot that was. <laughs> Yeah, it can't, it can't be easy because yeah, you're you're going on the fly, and um, no, that's but it's it's a uh, it's definitely something everybody who who watches really takes note though. You you just you do come across that in that natural way. You do a lot of LPGA tour coverage that we mentioned and you've talked about recently here, but you've been such a a cheerleader for the women's game, and you've covered the men's tours as well. But how do you classify the difference really between? the two tours and, and maybe even some of the interviews you do and some of the styles of how you, you talk to the men versus the women, or just, just kind of touch on that for, if you would. Well, the, probably the most important one, unless I'm interviewing, you know, Anna Norquist or Lexi Thompson or somebody is I'm usually a little bit taller than them and it makes for a bad look on TV. So I do the splits. And when I was interviewing Aimee Azada, who's about five foot one, I, I literally had to do the splits almost. So we get on a, a similar level for the camera frame. That's one big difference. Uh, the <laughs> difference between the LPJ Tour and the PJ Tour is, is the demands on their time. Obviously, the guys on the PJ Tour, the stars, the ones you want to interview, the ones you want to talk to, um, the ones you want to help you do some of your pre-produced features. They got a lot of people asking for their time. And, and a lot of them just really don't want to deal with it. And I understand why. They're playing for a lot of money out there. They're, they're each their own little corporation. On the LPGA Tour, there isn't really that class distinction. They're all kind of in the same boat together. None are super rich and none are, you know, a lot of them do kind of struggle to get by. But they're all, they all kind of, they're all, it reminds me of the old Hogan Tour and even the, the Canadian Tour and you played it. They're all kind of in the same boat. And so they all give it their all to support it. Like Mike Juan says, you know, act like a founder pretend like you own this tour, the way you conduct yourself. And you never get told no for an interview. You never, they always are very gracious with their time. And that's fantastic. Now, in terms of the golf, obviously it's different. I mean, you, you're married to an accomplished golfer, Christy, and uh, it's a different type of game, but it, it is too, it took me about two weeks to really learn how to appreciate the, the, the artistry and, and, the, and their magical skills that the LPGA players have there. They, in a lot of ways, and Jeff Ogilvie even said this, in a lot of ways, they do things better than the men that you would never think of. They're so much more accurate. They have to be quite a bit more strategic on how they approach a course. And they are, for your basic club golfer out there who doesn't hit it 340 yards, they're the source of where you should learn more about how to play golf and lower your score than on the PGA Tour, because you're not going to hit a six iron 230 yards out of the trees. Um they're just wonderful to be around. I'm fully invested in them. And they, I don't, they, they don't get all the credit they deserve. Uh, that's a changing tide politically and socially in America and in a lot of places of the world. And, and I'm seeing the, the swell of change rolling that way as well. And, and the companies that get involved and put their uh, money where their mouth is. Um, so, yeah, I, I am kind of you know, one of the big cheerleaders for the LPJ Tour because I, I really love the product. I think they do a great job and they're a blast to be around. Yeah, no doubt about that. Do you have a, a favorite story that, uh, I mean, maybe it's from one of the events or just in, in covering all the events that you have, a favorite story or two that, that really sticks out that our listeners would like? I, uh, 
when Jack Graham, my current boss and really good friend, great guy, when he came to me and said, you know, I was doing the host position on web.com and on course on PJ tour at the time. He said, you know what? We really need a little bit of help with our LPJ team. And the fact that he considered I could, I could be help was very flattering. And he told me about what he wanted me to do, be lead on course on, on LPJ, every LPJ tournament. And he said, what's your answer? So he didn't ask a question. Um, you know, he didn't ask me, do you want to do it? You told me this is what you're going to be doing. Of course, I'm going to do it. I go, I'm not happy about leaving my guys. The, you know, the Corn Ferry Tour, there's my people, the truck, the guys, and Chuck and Goose and Jim Duncan and all them. Those are the people that I grew up, cut my teeth with and broadcast with most of my career. But I said, okay. And then we did one tournament. And then the very next tournament was City of Industry, Industry Hills, which you know of, is just a big ballpark down in uh, somewhere in, in Southern California, City of Industry, actually. And I went out and I was just, I mean, I kind of got a little more, you know, I met as many players as I could and kind of became friends with them. And I was flattered when some of them would know who I was from my work on Golf Channel. And, and then I went out the last day, Sandra Gall was playing against G.A. Shin. G.A. Shin, who at the time was either number one or just removed from number one in the world. And I went out to the first hole on Sunday and there was a sea of 25, 30,000, mostly Asian people, but 30,000 people, it seemed like. It probably was more in the neighborhood of five to 10,000. A sea of people walking down the first hole. And I texted my producer, or called up, and I said, I'm walking all 18. When it's time for us to come on the air, bring my gear out. Because um, I don't want to miss a thing. This is, I mean, this is David against Goliath. Yeah. And all these people are one-sided. Um, Sandra Gall ended up winning on the very last hole when G.A. Shin missed a tiny little button. Admittedly, she was nervous as hell. She even said it. But I called Jack Graham that night. It was late his time. And I said, you know, may not have been happy about this to begin with, but if you take the LPGA away from me, uh, I want it in my next contract. I want the fact that I get to cover LPGA event in every contract from this day forward. And uh, I, yeah, I've been fully invested in it since then. No, that's a, that's a tremendous story. Uh, that's I know the logistics of covering an LPGA event, just the getting in and out of the uh, the site, maybe just a little smaller footprint as well, right? Some of them are, yeah. I mean, they they get the sponsor uh, and then they find a course in that market that will work. They don't necessarily have the uh, the long reach and the and the financial pockets to be able to say, all right. We're going to play here, and here's how much you're going to pay to sponsor. It's not how it works out there, but they can get some great courses on. Some of them, though, don't have the infrastructure to support a grand event, so they do the best they can to build it out within those confines, and a lot of times that means parking and, and what have you. But it's a it's quite a bit more intimate for the most part than the PGA Tour in most sites. Um, so it's it's never it's never a hassle. Um, it's you know the cool part is I'm a big fan of small airports, and we go to some tiny airports occasionally. You know, Arkansas, Walmart, Arkansas, and a few others. And uh, and I, I love those size towns. I love those mid-market size towns because it just it just feels feels more comfortable to me than the big city. Now, we're talking about getting back into all the professional golf kicking off again, coming up shortly. Well, like we mentioned before, you're going to have the opportunity to be on course at Seminole this weekend. What sort of mindset did you get when you got the call to to do that? And how excited are you to get back in the game, so to speak, right? And be kind of the, the first live golf with some pretty fantastic players. I feel a little nervous, actually. When uh, Tommy Roy, the head producer, lead producer, the producer, the legendary producer at NBC Sports called and said, Fultzy, we got this thing coming up. Top seeker right now. Don't, don't tell anyone, but this might be happening here in, in, 
in, in a, about a month and a half or so, or a month. He said, we want to make it an all local team, an all Florida team. So we want you to be on course with Steve Sands. We're going to have Gary and Gary Koch, Rich Lerner, and Paul Azinger drive up to St. Augustine and do it from there. We're going to be using PGA Tour live production system and, and these live view cameras, basically uh, really expensive, uh, fancy cell phone cameras. Um, and, uh, and, and it'll, yeah, he says, we'd like you to do it. I'm like flattered that you'd ask, you know, I'm flattered. I'm, I'm really flattered. I'm the only on-course commentator for NBC that, that lives in Florida. So I got the chance to do it. But there's going to be four players. Karen Stupples is going to be part of our production crew doing yardages. Yeah. Uh, Steve Sands will be on course with me and two rules officials, and there will be nobody else out there. So we're going to have a lot of eyeballs on it because it's the only live golf in a long, long time, which makes me nervous. Um, <laughs> we're going to have a system that I haven't worked under before with those live view cameras and the delay that happens between St. Augustine and, and down there, which makes me nervous. It probably makes Tommy Roy more nervous. Um, the, and then, uh, and there's going to be so many eyes on it. every person who plays or watches or, or views golf is a fan of golf. They would love to be inside those ropes at Seminole at the legendary, the most revered course in Florida, perhaps. And I'm, I'm the one who gets to do it. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm nervous. I hope I don't mess it up. And, uh, and it, it'll be a lot of fun. I know Ricky pretty well. Uh, Rory's always been great to me. DJ's fantastic to me. And, and I'm sure I'll get to know Matt Wolf very quickly. Yeah, it should be a pretty intimate atmosphere. Are you going to be interviewing them like between shots or what sort of things should we expect as a viewer that we're going to see from you and maybe from the whole production? Uh, I don't think we'll be doing a lot of interviews on course. They're all mic'd up, so we can talk to them at a distance even. Um, I don't think we're going to be doing a lot of interviews on course. We'll do a few interviews before the round Sunday, but it'll be a different type of interview. You know, you got to keep your distance away from everybody now. So it'll be, you won't be standing next to the guy working a microphone. You'll be at a distance through a boom mic or what have you. Uh, there's going to be, uh, there's a few production elements in there, you know, some really cool stuff that they have planned that I can't really divulge. Uh, but for the most part, it's just four guys out there playing a casual round of golf for a whole bunch of money, all for charity. Um, and it'll be, it, I mean, all for COVID relief. It, it's going to be, it's going to be special. It's going to be different. It's going to be a little bit of look into the future of what golf TV might look like in the near future as well, in terms of with a skeleton crew at, at the very most. Um, and they're going to be in shorts walking, carrying their own bag. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> carrying their own bag. That's going to be a sight, uh, a sight to see for sure. Yeah. It's going to, they're going to be playing for quite a bit of money actually for, the COVID relief fund, uh, 50,000 for the first six holes, seven through 16 will be worth a hundred grand. 17th will be worth 200 grand. And the last hole will be worth 500 grand. So, uh, yeah, a lot of money to, uh, respective charities. There's a, but yeah, there's a bunch of money that, uh, from, I believe farmers that goes into birdies and eagles. Uh, so you'll see guys putting out, even though their partners already made a birdie to try and cash more of that. I think it's up to like a million dollars or so. And then they've, they're opening the, the way for fans to call in and donate as well. Um, so we have no idea how much that's going to generate. But this in general is going to, I, I don't even know how many millions of dollars. And, and, you know, the neat thing I think about whenever you hear something like this, because you hear of all these charitable efforts that happen in and around golf. And you think, you know, what difference does it make? Where's that money go? What, what actually happens to it? Um, what I always try and think about is maybe this $7 million happens to fund that one scientist out there, that one team of researchers who figures it out, who figures out a cure or a, or a vaccine. It, you never, it's going to happen eventually. And maybe this is what 
goes to those guys who do the magical trick. So that, that part to me is what's exciting about getting involved in these types of events. Yeah, it's all, it's all good for a lot of great cause. Uh, before I let you go, I just have to ask you about Seminole and the course itself. There's all this mystique that has been drawn up out there and it's uh we're getting a, a sneak peek now the walker cup will actually be there in may of 21 uh god willing and but for me i, I can't quite believe that this is the first time that Seminoles being shown to the world what sort of things have you learned about the course and uh what sort of things are we uh we're gonna find out maybe uh, about Seminole? you know uh, i covered one walker cup and it was very similar it was at the national golf links and to the best of my knowledge when we covered that a few years back that was the first time that course had ever been shown on tv um i've learned a lot you helped with some information i've read a lot about it i've looked at a lot of pictures i've, I've listened to a ton of pj to a radio network and guys talking about it um it's it's gonna be fun it's gonna it's you know they're gonna pull back the veil a little bit on this uh, uh very revered mystical golf course so to speak um, when you hear the things that Ben Hogan had to say about it being one of, the, if not his favorite place in the world to practice and play, that, you know, that goes a long ways to tell you what, what, uh, what is neat. But I, I understand it's just a genius of a design, primarily because four average golfers can get around it in three and a half hours without hurting themselves and losing a lot of golf balls. And four highly skilled golfers can get around it in three and a half hours and maybe be a little more frustrated shooting a low score than they normally would. So that, that to me is a genius design. Uh, it's going to, I mean, a lot of people are going to tune in out of curiosity for the course. Now we're going to be giving it a different look. Our six cameras are all on the ground. There's no scaffolding, no elevation. We are right. going to have the aerial coverage though. So that will add a whole lot to it. So it's going to, you're going to get a real, you're going to get an, almost an inside the ropes look where there is no ropes. You're going to feel like you're inside the ropes the entire time watching the broadcast from what I understand. Oh, that's, that's going to be really exciting. I can't, can't wait to see that NBC 2 PM Eastern this Sunday. Uh, very, very exciting. I'm going to let you go. You've got a lot of baking to do, maybe a, a, a natty light to consume before five o'clock or whatever, but uh, can't thank you enough. Really look forward to seeing you on the coverage this weekend and uh, just appreciate your time that you gave us. All right. Thanks, Steve. I enjoyed it. And please tell Christy I said I always miss seeing you guys. Will do. Will do. Thanks. Thanks, Fulte. <laughs> 